from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. We are our experiences, and one of the things that is a great lesson from positive psychology and positive neuroplasticity is that we can make choices about what we experience, and we can make choices about the way that we experience things. Again, it's not denying the bad stuff, it's just exerting some level of control over what it is that the mental activity that we generate, because when we do that, it changes brain activity and it changes neural structures in a lasting way. Dr. Tony Zippel is an expert in behavioral health and rehabilitation counseling in both clinical and academic settings with extensive background as well in executive leadership of large organizations. I'm your host, Kyle Kramer, and in this episode, Tony and I reflect on his experience with positive psychology, mindful self-awareness, and how individuals and organizations can flourish, especially amidst change. Tony Zippel, welcome to the Earth and Spirit podcast. Good to be here with you, Kyle. Just to give listeners a, a map of the territory I hope that we can cover, I'm hoping we can really deal with two main topics. One is your interest in you know, positive psychology and neuroplasticity, and I think there's a mindfulness connection in there. And then you also, as, as we'll get into, have a, a long career in executive leadership of large organizations. And so I think a lot of these, these principles that we'll talk about in, in the first part of this conversation will hopefully apply in the realm of organizational leadership. So whether, whether a listener is an individual just looking for flourishing and well-being and navigating life skillfully and well, hopefully there'll be some resources in here. And likewise, if that listener is a, a member of an organization or a leader of an organization, we can hopefully offer some good content. I think sense? we can do both of those. Excellent. All right. Well, in order to get started, if you wouldn't mind giving folks a little bit of background about yourself, and I'm a fan of David Brooks. I don't know if you know him as a writer, but you know he has this distinction between uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And I wonder if by way of introducing yourself, obviously, you know, talk a little bit about the resume virtues, you know, what's your professional path looked like, but especially because this podcast likes to go deep into inner life and inner motivations, I'd be very curious to hear what sorts of compass points you've had or have developed through your personal and professional journey, whether those are core values, uh, key virtues that have had to come to the fore in your life or been shaped in particular ways by your experience and maybe mentors, uh, things like that. So uh, I guess this is a really juiced up way of saying, Tony, t- t- tell us your story. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question to think about the connection between those. You know, I grew up in a family where my father was a smart, caring, formidable guy. He was a high school guidance counselor. And and for his career, he worked with a group of students in the high school that, you know, nobody else really wanted to work with. You know, these were the kids that were the juvenile delinquents, you know, difficulties learning and trouble with the law, a mess in the classroom. Those were the kids that he wanted to work with. And I'm just curious, would that then make him the world's best parent because he's got all this practice or... 
he's by the end of the day he's exhausted and checked out and don't bother me kid I've already got enough problems to deal <laughs> now, with. Now you know that the, the, the being checked out was never a problem, okay. but 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 you know uh, his approach to doing this uh, worked really well with the kids, but didn't always feel as good at home <laughs> with me. And 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 you know the high school. I've that gotten he, that too. I've gotten like from various family members. You know, we're not your employees, Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the high school that he taught in was also the high school area in which we lived. Oh, okay. And and so, you know, my neighbors were, were you know, kids who had had him, who had uh-huh. had run-ins with him in one way or another. Yeah. They'd gotten jammed up because they didn't have hall passes, that kind of thing. Uh, and this was where in the country? In Dearborn, Michigan. Oh, Dearborn, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the other things about my father is that he had a deep deep belief in in fairness and mm. justice you know justice in a narrower kind of sense everybody should be treated fairly and he mm. would get incensed about people being treated unfairly mm. and the result of that was that that he had very deep interest in in uh, racial equality and justice uh, in the 60s so when I was growing up I grew up in Dearborn which was an all-white town mm-hmm. uh, run by a mayor who was an overt racist he was indicted over it oh my gosh um, and and my father had lots of African-American friends and was involved in racial justice kinds of things. Mm-hmm. At one point, someone set fire to our house over over oh some of this. You know, it was, it, it was, it was interesting. But what I learned from him was, you know, the sense of intense things ought to be fair. People shouldn't be treated badly because of stuff that they can't control because mm. of who they are. And that was such a big part of my upbringing. Yeah. And and I think that that's what finally brought me into the work that I do in psychology. And specifically, what what is that work for listeners' sake? Well, you know, most of my work has focused uh, uh, historically on services for people with very severe mental illnesses. You know, how do we make sure that people who are we have schizophrenia and are in abandoned warehouses and living under bridges get the supports and services they need to have a decent life on their own terms. Mm-hmm. You know, I was originally going to be an urban planner. I did undergrad at Notre Dame. I was going to be a, a professional philosopher and thought about doctoral work in philosophy. Did a master's degree in urban planning or urban planning-related program at Notre Dame in the School of Architecture but drifted into psychology and and felt like when I dropped into that first job, I had really come home. And interestingly, I I don't know much about urban planning, but the little that I do know leads me to surmise that there's actually a fair amount of psychology that goes into how you you design a city well based on what human flourishing – should look like. Yeah, maybe. Okay, you know, maybe what, I'm to- what, totally what, off What there. I figured out about urban planning is it was mostly about politics and fighting about where the next fire station was uh, Okay, going so to you're just more cynical and, than I am. Got yeah, it. <laughs> it, it, it. It's just, you know, other than a short time working with a little consulting group, I never really worked in urban planning. Yeah, I, okay. I dropped into a job that uh, was a, a federally funded research project mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. The goal was to take people who had been in the state hospital a really long time, on average more than 20 years, mm-hmm. and we had six months to get them cleaned up so that they could be acceptable to the community mental health centers in the community, right? Mm. And I fell in love with the work. Mm. You know, the combination of people who really had clear needs but had such interesting lives and strengths on their own, uh, the, the intellectual challenge of learning this material and building a field that was just developing, mm-hmm. the social justice overlay on it because sure. people have been treated really badly. All of that came together and it was like, you know, I'm home. Huh. And so you spent a lot of time, I mean, many 
many decades actually, running large behavioral health organizations kind of at the executive level, but you've also done some academic work and clinical work as well? A little bit of clinical work. Okay. I've, I've never really been anywhere close to a full-time clinician, okay. but I've always been responsible for developing and managing and getting funded good clinical services. So, right. so I've been at the front of building out some really novel and innovative services, even though in the end I didn't run them on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. But you ended up, I mean, I know from your resume that you, you did go back to school, get degrees in rehabilitative counseling, but also an MBA. So you have like yeah. organizational management experience as well. As yeah, you know, I, I drifted into a, uh, I actually, you know, after teaching for a while, I decided I needed more adrenaline in my life and, <laughs> and had an opportunity to step into an organization as, as a vice president, uh, which was like a huge jump for me. And, and running services for people with very, very serious mental illnesses. And boy, was that a great fit for me. Yeah. You know, again, like coming home. And so mm. I chased that for a long time. And as you said, I, I went back on an MBA so I could, you know, hone my management skills along the way. Yeah, because uh, what, what I'm learning in, and over many years of running a, a very mission-driven organization is, yes, you need passion for the mission as you clearly have and have had for with behavioral health services, but you passion isn't enough. You have to have the skills of running organizations well. You can't get by just on good intentions. So I hope in the latter half of our conversation, we'll be able to yeah. unpack that a little bit. You got to be able to keep the staff around. You got to be able to pay the bills. Yes. And you don't have to have a few dollars left at the end of the year. No margin, <laughs> no mission. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well said. I That is a common refrain around here. All right. Well, let's dive into this first of our two uh, areas for conversation about positive psychology and positive neuroplasticity. I mean, you, you have an extensive background here. You're currently actually teaching a course here at the Earth and Spirit Center. So sorry, listeners, too, I think too late to, to get into this course by the time this, this uh, airs, but maybe we'll have a, a, a redux of that at some point. Can we just start with some definitions? Like, for those who are not familiar with positive psychology or positive neuroplasticity, can you unpack those terms just real briefly? Yeah, let's start with positive psychology. Most of, of psychology and therapy and treatment in the United States has been focused around, you know, what we would call abnormal psychology, study of illness and pathology. pathology right. and, you know, we look at sick people and we think, you know, gee, what can we do to help them get rid of their symptoms and get back to baseline? Positive psychology is the flip side of that. We really want to look at what helps people have good lives and figure out ways to help them do more of that. So instead of looking at symptoms and pathology, we're looking at the things that help people flourish, that build well-being, that help people to have great lives. And this is Martin Seligman. Is he kind well, of the Martin father Seligman of this? is okay. is kind of the the American godfather of it. You know, <laughs> it goes back to a, a speech he gave when he became the president of the American Psychological Association in I think 1993 or something mm -hmm. like that, talking about it. The roots of it go back farther. You know, okay. Abraham Maslow oh, sure. in the 50s started to talk about you know we need to treat people like something more than a basket of symptoms. Mm. Now I'm going to interrupt right off the bat and ask a question that just popped right in front of my field of view here. On the one hand, I just heard you describe in your kind of journey a real fully and robustly developed passion for those who have serious pathological mm -hmm. conditions. And yet you also have this strong interest in positive psychology, which doesn't want to see folks in a pathological framework or lens. 
How do those two fit together? Well, what a great question. It's the roots of what I've always done in the work around people with serious mental illness. I come out of a rehabilitation framework. You know, I, I, I ended up at Boston University where I did doctoral work and taught for a while and did mm-hmm. academic research. And the framework for that is broadly speaking psycho- uh, rehabilitation psychology. So you okay. have a disability. You know, instead of a spinal cord injury and being in a wheelchair, you have schizophrenia. I can't fix your schizophrenia. You're going to have to figure out, you know, your schizophrenia and having a life in spite of the fact that you have this disability. And a flourishing life, right. That's right. Can Can I help you with skills and supports so that you can take your life back, so that you can have a good life on your terms live in the kind of place that you'd want to be, have a job, go to school, have friends and family. Even though you have this quote-unquote Even though pathology. you have a disability. Got it. You know, okay, that we, helps a lot. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we did that years ago with things like, you know, uh, 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 people with, with who are deaf and hearing impaired or people who are blind. You know, mm-hmm. we, we used to stick them off in special places and say, you know, oh, your life is over. But we figured out, you know, with skills and supports, people can have real lives. How can we help people have great lives in spite of the fact they have a disability? And positive psychology is a lot like that. We're focused on strengths. We're mm-hmm. focused on building what it is that people can work with so that they can have great lives in spite of the fact that not everything's working for them. Right. And let's just be clear, all of us limp through these through our lives. All of us have some physical, mental impairment of some sort or all the above. Sure. We've all been banged around. I mean, yeah. there, there are only two kinds of people in the world, right? I mean, there are people who have never, who've had bad things happen to them, who've had trauma and difficulty and illness. And then there are the people who just haven't been on the planet long enough. Because mm. if you stick around for a while, bad stuff happens. It's just yeah. a fact of life. And that's not a question. The question is, can we build the inner resources that we need? Yeah. Can we generate the supports we need to have an authentic, genuine level of happiness and a good life in spite of the fact that bad things have happened. Yeah. Well, I, I hope at whatever point in this conversation, we we will circle back to that idea because I would certainly need any uh, tips and tricks and support that you might be able to offer and, and certainly would hope that for our listeners as well. But as usual, I interrupted you. So you were talking about positive psychology, yeah. and then you were also going to talk about positive neuroplasticity. Well, I was going to say about positive psychology that, that the roots of this go, go way back. Yeah. I mean, Aristotle talked Eudem- about- Eudaimonia, right? Yeah. You know, what is it that we need to have a good life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so people have struggled with this in, in philosophical levels for a long time. You know, philosophy and psychology kind of merged in funny ways as you get into the 19th and 20th century. Uh, And we lost in psychology a lot of our focus on these positive things. There was a study that was done of psychology journals where they looked at the ratio of pathology-oriented articles to positive-oriented articles. And you no surprise, there were vastly more articles about pathology than there were about what do we do to have good lives. So this is positive psychology is focused on that. Excellent. And what about positive neuroplasticity? Yeah, you know, probably a lot of the listeners know a little bit about neuroplasticity. We've kind of figured out that our brains actually do change. You know, we used to think that your brain is kind of fixed and that it doesn't really evolve. But what we I think figured, my kids still think that of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of it's probably true that a lot of people think about about mine as well. But they do evolve. Yeah, um, and they evolve in response to experience. And so, you know, if, if you want to be uh, more compassionate, 
you know, you have more repeated experiences of compassion because what that does is it builds those neural channels and connections that make experiences of compassion more accessible to us. And the more accessible they are, the more we see it, the more we see it, the more we're like it, the more we're like it, the more we see it. It creates these virtuous cycles. So in positive neuroplasticity, we're trying to create frameworks and interventions that help to shape the brain in a way that makes these positive experiences more accessible. And again, the more of them you have, the more likely it is that you'll have more. We want people to change their minds in a way that changes their brains in a way that can change their minds. Yeah, I love that. And we deal with those themes so frequently here at the Earth and Spirit Center, and it never ceases to amaze me how many folks think that their mental health or their spiritual maturation or wisdom can occur in a simple flash of insight or at the flip of a switch. Like they want to get into meditation so that they can have these this aha moment where all of their sight clears up and their their problems fall away. Whereas, and of course that doesn't happen. Of course they leave disappointed. <laughs> if you think about the analogy of building up, say, your, your physical body, you would never go to a gym and expect to to walk out of there looking like uh, an Olympian or something like that. You know that that would take time to kind of train the musculature. And I guess because we walk around with our neuromusculature hidden inside our skulls, maybe we, we think that that process can look different. But I hear you saying, no, it's a pretty similar process. It's a pretty similar process in terms of the process, but like the process of going to the gym and building strength, it takes time to do. It's a step at a time. Uh, And and one of the things I think has been a problem around neuroplasticity has been that it's been oversold, I think, in the popular literature. You know, you see things in the popular literature about how you can rewire your brain, you know, as if like all you need to do is, is get an electrician and it'll change a few circuits and everything will be okay. It takes time to do that. You you know, it's repeated experiences over time to change those neural pathways. So Mm -hmm. so it's it's like meditation. You need to find a way to develop a practice of this to make it work. Right. A practice over time. Do it even when it's hard, even when it's boring, even when you're not seeing the immediate results. Yeah. Like Uh, brushing your teeth. Exactly. Yeah. Mental, Mental hygiene. So let's let's dive into that question in particular because of course this is this is the water we swim in. How would you describe the relationship between mindfulness and positive psychology or neuroplasticity? I'm, I'm probably going to combine those. And I suppose I should ask first, like, what's your working definition of mindfulness, and then how how do those connect? Mindfulness for me is just being able to be present with whatever is happening and going on. Mm-hmm. It's stopping taking a breath and just observing what's going on inside of me, what's going on outside of me with curiosity, without expectation. Okay. And so how does how does mindfulness so defined relate to positive psychology in, in your experience and understanding? First of all, let me start by saying mindfulness, this practice of being present now is foundational to all kinds of things in psychology to doing better. I mean, it's really hard, for example, if if you want to make a change in automatic thoughts that affect your mood so that, you know, I change my automatic stories and reframe what I'm thinking so that I feel better in response to that. It's hard to do that unless you can catch yourself in the moment 
with, with that automatic thought of I'm a failure and life is miserable and it's terrible and it's always going to be that way. Right. And mindfulness kind of gives you the tools to interrupt those patterns, doesn't it? That is exactly right. <laughs> so that thing that mindfulness is kind of a platform for moving into a lot of this. How can you help people to slow down, take a breath, and think about what their options are before they move forward? Yeah, it's interesting how many folks come to us as a place that does teach a lot of mindfulness. And they, kind of setting up a caricature here, but I've seen it enough to think I can do some generalization. They think that mindfulness is going to give them a workaround for their other serious mental pathologies. When in point of fact, when they get into mindfulness and really living into the present moment, those pathologies come absolutely front and center and frankly, scare the hell out of them. And many of them just run for the hills at that point. Having thought that mindfulness could somehow short circuit that or let them bliss out over the top of it or something like that. Whereas I mean, at least in in my experience, uh, personally, as a, as a longtime meditator, my goodness, when when I sit down, if there's something really troublesome going on in my head, the first place it's going to show up is on my meditation cushion, where where I need to work with it. <laughs> That's absolutely right, and it's about learning that it's possible to have these negative experiences, this negative material and positive material at the same time, right. that you can sit with it and, and it doesn't mean it's there forever and that there are no good things and that your life is over. Both of those kinds of things can happen at the same time and you can have positive moments and negative moments at the same time. And being able to be there and with it is important. One of the things we've learned is that interventions that try to suppress negative feeling also suppress positive feeling. And we wow. don't want to walk around with no emotions. We want to, to amplify the positive, happy parts of what's going on with it. But you can't do that if you ignore the, the difficult parts. Right. Well, and, and I remember the research indicating that like, these Olympic meditators who have been you know do, done their 10,000 hours plus and they get plugged into the fMRI machines and come to find out that they actually have capacity to feel both positive and negative things more acutely than the rest of us. But the difference being that they can then recover more quickly. So they experience something wonderful, but aren't as attached to that yeah. and can return to baseline without being crushed or, or can experience something you know, deeply difficult or even traumatic and be deeply affected by it, but then also come back up to baseline. In more, you know, Buddhist terms, it's, it's finding ways to avoid the second arrow. Yes. I got hit with that first arrow and it really hurts and it's terrible and it's miserable and I wish it hadn't happened. And as but, you say, it does happen to all of us. <laughs> but, you know, now I'm worried about the blood on my shirt and what are other people <laughs> going to think and I'm going to get to my meeting, all this secondary stuff that happens. That shoots the second arrow, right. right. So how do you avoid all of that secondary injury associated with it? It's a way in a sense of teaching distress tolerance. You know, if we we can learn to do this well, we can learn better distress tolerance. Yeah, that's a great segue into a question I wanted to ask, because I, I don't think I've ever had anyone on who has this specific expertise that you do in positive psychology. And a little bit of background to this question, it has to do with like loss and grief, to, so you can be thinking about it. But I, a couple months ago, I interviewed Stephen Jenkinson, who is a Canadian 
I've referred to him almost on every episode now, it occurs to me, because uh, he, he really deeply affected me. He's a Canadian activist, author, uh, spent years in what he called the death trade, which is palliative care and uh, end-of-life kinds of counseling and so forth. And he just blew the top of my head and uh, I think my entire heart open with this engagement of his his thesis is that as a North American culture writ large, we don't do loss and grief very well. We like to paper over it. And, and I think that translates in the spiritual and psychological realm as well, or the meditative realm, however you want to call it, that it can be hard for us to manage these things. So I'm wondering, how do positive psychology, wants to, which wants to focus on flourishing and all the components of a good and happy life, and we all want to be happy, of course, how does that fit together with the fact, as you started our conversation with, every one of us has hard things. We all lose people we love or jobs. or Hard things happen. How does positive psychology, especially like through the mindfulness lens that I know you, you use, how, how does it take loss and grief seriously? Wow. Well, by not ignoring it. I mean, it's real, right? You know, bad things happen to all of us. That That's not the question. The question is what you do when bad things occur. And so the challenge, I think, is how do we build skills and support? You know, to go back to my rehabilitation framework, how do you build skills and supports that help you to have a good life in spite of the fact that there are obviously bad things that have occurred. Mm -hmm. So that's part number one. So a lot of positive psychology interventions have to do with building those inner resources. Uh, you know, self-compassion, yeah. for example, would, would be an example of that. Or social connection, you know? How, how can I use those experiences of social connection that are healing for me right now? And how can I use my skills at social connection to reach out and get support so that I'm not alone in these kinds of moments? Yeah. So by giving people skills and supports for having a good life in spite of the fact that they've gotten bumped around, uh, you can manage that more effectively. All of us have had terrible losses. You know, it's just part of being a human being. But there are multiple ways to deal with that. You know, you, know, you got to pick yourself up and find positive things going on in spite of that without letting go of the fact that this really was bad. Yeah, and this may just be a way of asking the same question again, so feel free to just say, I already answered this, Kyle, but I know you're coming from the context of providing supports through a behavioral health context. You're, you're dealing with folks who are working in a system because they have a recognizable pathology or, or disability uh, and so forth. But I, I assume, and I put myself in this category too, that most of us have to take all this stuff coming at us without being involved explicitly in a behavioral health organization or something that could have the structures in place to provide supports. For those of us who are lay people outside the system, what would you say are some of the most helpful things that have worked for either you personally or you've seen work for others? You mentioned self-compassion, social connection. Are there others that someone could walk away from this podcast with saying, you know, this is a tool I could put in my tool belt. I think that there are a lot of those kinds of things. The single biggest predictor of happiness, and it's not just, you know, being happy and feeling good, but it also predicts uh, lifespan. Mm -hmm. It predicts health. It predicts all kinds of positive things is social connection. Yeah. 
right? Bob Waldinger, who ran the uh, Harvard study on adult development for a number of years, just published Mm -hmm. a book uh, called The Good Life, which is about the Harvard study, which has run now since 1938. John Kennedy and Ben Bradley were undergraduates at Harvard and were in the study when this went on. Oh, my gosh. And what this study has found is, you know, things like that aren't going to surprise you. You know, people who didn't smoke and didn't drink a lot tended to be happier and live longer, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But what they also found was people who had good social relationships Mm. at age 50 tended to be the healthiest and happiest at age 70. You know, there's something about social connection that's so important for us. And so one of the first things, you know, that you can do that's just really practical and easy Mm -hmm. is invest more in your connections with other people, friends, family, taking a few minutes to talk to the barista at the coffee shop, getting in the elevator and chatting with somebody. So both strong ties and weak ties. Absolutely. Uh Barbara Fredrickson uh, has written a book called Love 2.0, which is all about the importance of these kinds of small, positive social interactions. You know, we have that conversation with the barista for a couple of minutes. They feel good. We feel good. It's helpful for both of us. So that sort of reciprocal positive exchange, you can do those many, many times a day. Every time you have contact with another person is an opportunity to have that kind of an exchange or to pretend that they're just, you know, kind of a robot and you don't really interact with them. Well, and unfortunately, it seems to me that a lot of us tend to be in workplace cultures that, for lack of a better term, want to grind us up and spit us out and don't necessarily give us the bandwidth to cultivate these, you know, uh, these kinds of social connections if if we're being asked to be on call, a slave to our email at all hours. It, it's harder to say, you know, I'm done with work at five and I'm actually going to go to the intramural soccer club now. <laughs> it is harder, but we always have a choice. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, there are always things that we can do that can make it better. No matter No matter how tough our situation is, you know, there's always something that we can choose to do that makes it incrementally better or worse. I have hope here, actually, as cynical as I may sound and, and cynical as I may be to whatever degree. I also think, particularly with COVID and with the millennials and Gen Zers kind of entering the workforce or being in the workforce in you know, more prominent roles, that there's, uh, there's more capacity to hold up these other values even in organizational life than there might have been, say, for the Gen Xers or the the boomers where work was absolute king. I mean, a lot of folks just don't want to go down that road anymore. Well, I think that that's true, but the flip side of it is also true. You know, we, we live in front of screens, you know, and, and that can be really isolating. Yeah. Having friends on Facebook is not the same thing as having real friends, yeah. for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bob Putnam, a number of years ago, uh, looking at big data, uh, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the title comes from, you know, more people in the United States are bowling than we're bowling 50 years ago or something like that, but we're all bowling by ourselves. Fewer people are bowling in leagues oh. than they used to bowl. So there's a way in which social connection and social capital has deteriorated in the United States. And, and, you know, I I would suggest that one of the most important things we can do for our well-being, health and happiness, for doing well and building resources to face challenges, is that we can build stronger social connection in big and in small ways. Mm, Beautiful. 
Well, I, I'm in. I'm all in on that. You have my vote, uh, yeah. even though I'm worse at it than I wish I were. <laughs> well, one other thing I want to I want to mention is just you know being able to 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 generate and stay with positive experiences. Rick Hansen, who has focused a lot of his career on this issue of positive uh, neuroplasticity and how do you build it. And, and you know, I owe a lot to in terms of his teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, Rick has generated a way, created a way to say to people, look, you know, you can have a positive experience at any moment. That You're having lots of them right now. You know, you've got plenty of oxygen to breathe. Mm. You've got a chair that you're sitting in and it's keeping you off the ground and defying gravity. <laughs> uh, you, you have lots of positive experiences right now and you can generate them. There are things that happened to you last week that might happen next week. There are things you can imagine, things that happen with friends, all kinds of mental positive experiences that you can have question is, can you take those experiences and install them in a way that creates neural change? Well, and can you see these experiences through a positive filter in the first place? Because everything you just described, for example, me sitting on this chair, are things that we could quite easily take for granted and see as neutral, not notice at all. But it sounds like you're saying you you can make a positive experience out of a much broader range of experiences than one might suspect. You don't have to win the lottery. You don't have to have the perfect job or not have the flotsam and jetsam of life come at you. You can... We're not making them positive experiences. They are positive experiences. We're just going to go back to mindfulness. We're slowing down and noticing them. Mm. We're paying attention to them. And it's not just having the experience that's important. It's being able to enrich it and absorb it. So can you stay with that positive experience for just a few breaths? I assume like a gratitude practice would fall into that category, right? Yeah. Gratitude practices are really rich ground for mm-hmm. this this work around around positive neuroplasticity. Recognize something good and and not just say, "Oh, that was nice," but you know, what were the features of that? You know, how can I make that a bigger, brighter, bolder, more intense experience in my head? Hang on to it for just two, three, four, five breaths. Let it really sink into me and be a part of me. 60 seconds of doing that with that specific positive experience makes a difference neurologically. And and you do that step by step, time after time. Do it five or 10 times a day for the next couple of months and see if that doesn't help your mood. Yeah, I love the kind of rigor and robustness with which you describe these practices because again, connecting it back to neuroplasticity, you're saying, I hear you to be saying that you, when you do that, you are rewiring your brain. You're using your mind to make choices about how you interact with your experiences that will then literally rewire your neural circuitry and therefore change your mind, as you said earlier, such that I'm hoping just as when you train your muscles, it gets easier to pick up weights, it would be easier than in this case to see the positive in an experience, to show gratitude. There's, it seems like there's a virtuous cycle here. Yeah, I had, I had the good fortune to do study uh, a couple of times with uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, 
who is a, you know, he got famous for a while. He taught a class at Harvard on happiness. And inside of a few years, it became the largest course ever taught at Harvard. You know, and I think, I don't know if she took his baton, but I think she's actually at, at Yale. Yale. Santos. Uh, Lori Santos, yeah. Uh-huh, go ahead. Yeah, she's done a very similar kind of thing at Yale. Uh-huh. And Tall has done a lot of teaching now. He actually has a master's program in happiness studies, deep into positive psychology, but using happiness as an organizing construct for that work. And one of the things that Tal likes to say is that when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. I've heard that. I love that. If we can take time to savor those special moments, and every moment can be special, it gets easier to find those moments. I think, you know, I'm I'm probably going to misquote uh, 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 something that's attributed to Buddha, but, you know, it's like, ask not where the good will come from. Drop by drop, the water bucket is filled. Mm. Right, you know, you do this over and over again. Little by little, we become the people that we want to be, experience by experience. And this business of taking in positive moments and enriching and absorbing them, drop by drop, we build stronger neural connections that make positive experience more accessible to us. Oh, I am. Um... Just recently, within the past few months, read, read uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits, like mm-hmm. all other 500 million people that have read it. And uh, he makes the same point, that you make these these small but consistent drop-by-drop into-the-bucket changes, and they end up having really big consequences for your overall well-being in your life. We are our experiences. And one of the things that is a great lesson from positive psychology and positive neuroplasticity is that we can make choices about what we experience. And we can make choices about the way that we experience things. Mm. Again, it's not denying the bad stuff. It's just exerting some level of control over what it is that the mental activity that we generate, because when we do that, it changes brain activity and it changes neural structures in a lasting way. Tony, thank you. I so appreciate this first bucket of our conversation and a lot of helpful insights about positive psychology and neuroplasticity. And most of those, I think, have been focused on what we as individuals can do uh, to incorporate better habits uh, and practices into our life. But I don't want the opportunity to go lost here to talk with you about organizational life, because you have spent decades at the the helm of or at, you know top-level executive leadership of very, very large in most cases, behavioral health organizations. And I know that you you currently provide consulting services to such organizations. And I wonder if, to get that part of our conversation going, you might just be able to outline for me, in your experience, both running organizations and, and working with them as a consultant, if the first half of our conversation was all about flourishing individuals, what is a flourishing organization? look like? What are its key elements or characteristics? Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, and as I was mentioning, 
before uh, uh, we, we started recording, I, I do work with a group called Insight Consulting Solutions, and their focus is on organizational well-being, primarily with behavioral health organizations, because they know, you know, I mean, in the end, uh, an organization like a mental health center only has one product. I mean, they sell hours of skilled time, mm. and if their staff aren't in good shape, if their staff aren't feeling a sense of well-being, the organization's not going to do well and services aren't going to be good either. And so I, I think that it's a really important question. How do we help organizations to be healthy? How do we well build well-being in organizations? And I think some of the same things we've talked about individually apply to this. Mm -hmm. I think that there are a few things that are really core to it. I mean, number one, you know, you need to understand the demands of the job and you need to understand what makes people tick. You know, you, you understand who they are and their behavioral drives, and you want to make sure that you're putting people into job roles that are a good fit for them. You, so you know, right people in the right seats on the bus. Uh -huh. Well, that's right, and we tend we tend to overfocus, I think, on qualifications. You know, kind hmm. of what's on your resume, what's in your briefcase, and underfocus on who you are. So, hmm. so for example, I can manage detail if I have to. You know, you know, I had a five hundred page dissertation based around original research. I can manage detail, but I do not like it. Put me in a job where I've got to do that day in and day out, year after year. I'm going to be exhausted, grumpy, cutting corners. It's not me, mm -hmm. right? Put me in a job that really is a fit with who I am, and I can flourish. So I think the first step is to find a process for helping to identify what's really required behaviorally, dispositionally in that position, and try to look under the hood with people and find people that are a good match for that at a personal level, not just at a resume level. Okay. And I know that you have experience, I mean, first of all, also running an organization on a much smaller scale, but recognizing that if you don't have the right people, you don't have much. You can't do it. Yeah. But finding the right people is not an easy thing. And I know you have experience with something called predictive index, which to my understanding, I have some familiarity with it, but it's a tool of both self-awareness and an awareness of the, the skill sets and needs, uh, gifts and talents, et cetera, of your workforce. Can you maybe say a few words about how PI or similar kinds of tools can help ensure that if one of this, these key characteristics of a flourishing organization is having the right people in it doing the right things, how does PI and how do similar tools help? Yeah. I mean, think of predictive index as a platform for doing a range of things around optimizing talent in an organization. There are three basic assessments, mm -hmm. right? There's a behavioral assessment that looks at the underlying drives of individuals. There's a job assessment that helps you to look at what the behavioral drives are that you ideally want to see in every role in the organization. Mm -hmm. And then there's a cognitive assessment, which is, you know, think of it as a measure of problem-solving speed. How quickly can you take in new information and use it? Mm -hmm. So if I can look at a job and I can say, you know, I'm looking for, give you an example, uh, a million-mile truck driver. I want a truck driver who's going to do great driving safely, a million miles and 10 years 
years without a ticket or an accident. Mm-hmm. What kind of a person do I want who's in that role? Well, I want to look for somebody who who's collaborative, who's reserved and thoughtful about things, who's steady and consistent, and who's precise and cares about details. They're going to mm. tighten down that load every few hours, mm. whether they feel like it needs it or not, because that's what the rules are. Mm. And so you can use tools like the predictive index job assessment to define the behavioral kind of person you want in there. Mm-hmm. And then you can begin to give that to every applicant for the job and f- take the match between the two. You know, How close is this person to a good fit there? Where are the areas of alignment? Where are the areas of potential misalignment? So it increases your hit rate, especially if you add the cognitive assessment that I, I know this person's quick enough to do whatever the job is required. Mm-hmm. Doing those things increases your hit rate for getting an optimal person on the job by more than 50%. Mm. And, you know, it's not perfect, but if you can go from traditional ways of looking at people, which give you about a 14 or 15% perfect match to a 50 or a 55% perfect match, I mean, those are odds that you'd go to Atlantic City with any day. Oh, but uh, the the initial odds, the 14 to whatever percent uh, on the low end, gosh, that's depressing and so resonant with my own experience. It is so hard to make good hires. Yeah, and and even if you make a hire who's okay, have you made a great hire? Are they going to mm-hmm. be really fully engaged? I mean, Gallup has done a lot of work on this, that you know most of the workforce in the United States is not fully engaged in their jobs. They're either disengaged or not fully engaged. Wow. You know, because of a mismatch between their their skills and talents and needs and the particular role they're in. I think that's the start of it. Yeah. So predictive index and and I think good organizational well-being starts with getting people in the right seats. Okay. And Are there any other the, the second elements? start of it is you you, you need to uh, coach and supervise people the way they need to be coached and supervised, right? I mean, you again, know, referring probably to predictive index. <laughs> predictive index helps you do that, <laughs> or something right? similar. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know what the golden rule is, right? And you know, I think we need to step it up to what's sometimes called the platinum rule: is that you need to do unto others the way they need you to do under them. Can we supervise ah. and coach people the way they want and need to be coached? And Not supervised? the way you would need to be coached. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for example, for, for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who, you know, give me a project, give me some broad parameters, let me run with it and stay out of the way. You, you but know? don't ask you for spreadsheets every day. I don't want, yeah, don't come in and make small talk with me every 15 minutes. <laughs> don't push me into doing the, give me somebody who can help me with the details on this. Yeah. You know, don't make me talk about those all the time. If you don't coach and supervise me in a way that leverages my strengths and and maybe helps to support me around some of the places where there's not alignment, work isn't going to feel like coming home to me. Right. And I'm going to be vulnerable to bailing. You know, I'm going to find a job that feels like a better fit for me. Yeah. So it starts with getting people in the best fit that you can. Mm-hmm. It moves into how do we coach and supervise people in a way that makes them flourish and feel like it is a great job every day. Mm. And then the third part of it is there's a whole flock of things that we can do in organizations that relate directly to positive psychology. You know, practicing gratitude in an organization goes a long way to making the place feel like home. Can senior managers model that? The guy who was the CEO of Campbell Soup uh, uh, was reported to have sent 30,000 birthday cards to people. Like handwritten birthday cards? Handwritten. Oh my gosh. Sign them all. And so modeling gratitude, thank you for being here. 
I really appreciated that thing that you do. Finding ways to cascade that through the whole organization is an example of that. Yeah. Or work-life balance. There aren't very many organizations that give you bonus points on your performance evaluation for taking all of your benefit time. Right, we we live in a world where where Americans take less vacation today than they did twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. Right, and and that's that's not healthy or good. You know, right. I, I've done trekking. And exhaustion and, should not be a badge of honor. <laughs> should not be a badge of honor, and in the long run, we get burned out and crispy and disengaged, and we figure things will be better in a different job, and we go someplace else. So so we want to reward people for taking good care of themselves. Yeah. And part of that might be, I'm docking you in your evaluation because you haven't taken enough benefit time. You, you've left vacation time on the table. I want you, I'm ordering you to take more time off, Not not because... I want to get rid of you because I care about you. We don't do much of that. You know, I mean, there are mm-hmm. really simple things we can do, like better food in the vending machines and working on physical health and giving people little bonus points and prizes for going to see their PCPs for regular checkups and getting yeah. immunizations and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. going to the gym. Right. All of that stuff counts. But all of that work that we can do, too, around gratitude, mm. you know, around balance between work life and home life around fostering social connection. When when organizations create space and time for employees to learn about each other and be with each other, that's not wasted time. You know, that's building a strong organization. Uh, a group that I've worked with, for example, in their team meetings, at the beginning of each meeting on a rotating basis, someone spends five minutes just talking about something interesting going on in their life right now. Yeah. Right? So that people get to know each other. Or um, you know the, the intervention called 36 Questions? No. You, you'd love it. There, there was somebody who had this wonder about whether you could take two strangers and you could make them feel close to each other by asking a series of structured questions that get progressively more intimate oh. over time. And by the way, it works really well. And a game you can play with friends and family and that kind of thing. But I I know an organization where at the beginning of each staff meeting, they take one question, they go around the table with it. And everybody spends 30 seconds, you know, just giving an answer to it. So it takes them like 36 weeks to work through this. uh, To achieve uh, a much higher level of intimacy with each other. Yeah. Yeah. So so taking time to build social connection and celebrate and appreciate Mm. each other at a personal level, you know, that does all of that good social connection stuff. People with best relationships at 50, healthiest and happiest at age 70, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, reduces absenteeism, reduces uh, health insurance costs, you know. So investing in those kinds of positive psychology things that we know make a difference can pay off organizationally as well. Ah, you know, but it, it does take a good leader to recognize the value of those things Aside from or in addition to the profit and loss statements and the balance sheets and all of the machinery parts that make an organization run. So I I wonder if you could speak a bit about if we've been talking about the characteristics of a healthy organization, obviously healthy organizations require healthy leadership and and healthy leaders. What kinds of examples can you think of of a healthy leader? What sort of characteristics might that person embody? And I've uh, confessing here, looking at my notes, I, I read many, many, many of your blog posts, and you've, you've quoted here the Dalai Lama as listing mindfulness, selflessness, 
and compassion as, as some of the top qualities of good leaders. Is that your go-to list still, or are there others you would subtract or add? What does a good leader look like? Well, I think, I think that those are important. I mean, I mean, first, you've got to be competent. You know, you've got to have the right stuff in your briefcase. That's just table stakes, right? You know, you got you, you got to have the smarts to do it. You've got to have the experience. You've got to have some been there, done that. You have to have training. You know, so 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 having the right resume is foundational to right. it. You have so to be qualified for the job. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to say you can just take you know somebody off the street who's well intentioned and drop them into a complex job and have it work. It doesn't happen that right. way. But beyond that, I think that you need leaders who are uh, lifelong learners, who are willing to connect in a real way with their staff and learn from the experience. I think you need people who are, are open to failure and, and, and have a good sense of being able to uh, generate some level of self-compassion. You know, mm -hmm. none of us are perfect. And if you run around trying to act like you are and defend against ever making an error, people seeing you as mm -hmm. weak or having made a mistake, you know, you make all kinds of mistakes along the way. You know, one of the things I think in senior leadership that is a problem is that as you're coming up in an organization, you make progress through the ranks by uh, generating lots of push, right? You, you, you know, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to make it happen. I'm a go-getter. Lots of push in your makeup that gets you to a certain point. But when you get to a certain point, decisions become more ambiguous. You know, I've got to make a decision, and I might not know for three years whether it was the right decision mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no right or wrong answer clearly for this. Complexity is bigger. I need to find a way to pull people with me as opposed to push strategies. So all of the things that we're talking about in terms of compassion, connecting with other people, uh, servant leadership, modeling the way, those kinds of things become really important in pulling people along and in managing managing in an area where there's lots of ambiguity and uncertainty. And change, yeah. I mean, I experienced that myself, certainly having shepherded this organization through COVID and you know, any other, uh, many other uh, transitions. I, I love this distinction you make between strategic planning and strategic doing, where you, as I understand you, have a little less confidence in the, the shiny, newly minted three-year strategic plan, given all of the exigencies of life and the fact that we are so poor at predicting what's actually going to happen. What is that difference and how can a leader employ that to manage change and uncertainty well in an organization? Yeah, I think as the, as the external environment gets more unstable and less predictable, being able to do a three-year strategic plan is like, well, man, that's nice. Maybe you have to do it, but do you really think you can predict what the right place is going to be for you to be three years from now, really tough to do. And instead, investing in strategic capacity, investing in the ability to move the way you need to move as circumstances change. So, you know, you obviously have to, to have to have your eye on kind of the bottom line and you might want to push volume. And there are some broad things like that that you pay attention to, but you've got to do the right things on a day-by-day -day basis to strengthen your capacity to move and to change and evolve, even if things end up looking really different. I mean, look at COVID. Who would have, who would have predicted COVID in their strategic plan? Nobody has it in their plans. Yeah. But organizations that have great capacity 
who have great strategic capacity, who have great ability to do things strategically, can manage the difficulties associated with those big changes that occur and have the capacity to take advantage of some of the opportunities that they may present as well. I'm a big Jim Collins fan, and I remember reading, gosh darn it, I can't remember the particular book, but his point is that successful companies versus unsuccessful companies, the distinction is not, well, one had a lot of a lot better luck than the other. They basically both had the same luck, both good luck and bad luck. And the difference was one organization knew how to mitigate the bad luck and take great advantage of the good luck events. Yeah. And the other basically did the opposite, failed to capitalize on the good things and maybe amplified the bad things such that they, they just broke apart. Yeah. To go back to positive psychology, one of the things that's true about happier people is that happy people report themselves as being luckier. Oh, really? Right. So if you're happier, you're going to tend to be luckier. Now, wh why would that be? Well, it's probably because when you're happier, you are in a position where you can see laterally more easily. Your field of view is broader. You're not so focused on, you know, the trudging along the Bataan death march in front of you, you know? You know, you can see laterally and you can take advantage of opportunity that's there in front of you that, that if you're feeling miserable, you probably just don't see at all. Okay, so this is not like the law of attraction where the happier people like draw happier things to themselves. You're saying they have a perspective that allows them to see the good and the useful even in things that others might say, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's happened. Happier people are better able to see opportunity. Mm. You know, their field of view about the world in front of them isn't constrained by trying to, you know, force their view only on certain things. You know, go back to mindfulness, you know, another another version of mindfulness. Let me just sit and be present with what's really here and with curiosity, observe all of the things happening internally and externally. What opportunities does that open for me when I'm able to really see that clearly? And happier people are able to do that, and so they, they, they're, they're luckier. Yeah. Oh, I just, I have this dream of, because I, I love organizational life, I love being an organizational leader, I just have this dream of more and more organizations being mindful both as organizations, you know, with mindful leaders, with mindful employees, such that at all levels within the organization, there is that capacity to encounter the good luck and the bad luck events and to take a fairly neutral stance as opposed to catastrophizing or anything like that yeah. and therefore be able to make skillful choices. As you said, have that strategic capacity to make good strategic moves in the face of unpredictable things happening. Yeah, and mindfulness is a huge help with that. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn with, with mindfulness-based stress reduction has been working those fields for a long time. David Allen, who has carved out a giant career on, on personal organizing you know, oh, for yeah. people, talks about uh, the, the metaphor mind like water. You know, mm -hmm. we want to stress, we want, we want to work towards mind like water. When you toss a pebble in there, the water reacts exactly like the water should react. And it ripples as much as it needs to and then returns to calm again. Can we do that with our minds? And that's so important in the workplace. Can we react appropriately, not overreact? not underreact and settle back down when we need to. You know, that, that mindfulness helps with those kinds of disciplines. Mm. Well, this gets to my last question as we wrap up here, or second to the last question. So you, you have had 
an amazingly accomplished professional career, as I mentioned. You you have a, a CV that makes you know a, a mere mortal like me <laughs> tremble, and yet I know you enough, I think, to recognize that you are an immensely approachable, very grounded, very well balanced person. And, and so I just wonder, from one organizational leader to another, how have you balanced the drive and ambition that is, I think absolutely essential, especially when you're running large organizations, with self-care and social connection and all of these other things. I mean, it's one thing to say these things are important, but I know from my own experience, when you get in, when you have a really big, hard job, it is easy for those things to go away. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is easy for your work days to balloon in from eight to 10 to 12 hours, six days, seven days a week. How have you navigated that in a, in a way that's kept you sane and centered throughout these years? There have been moments they have, or my my uh, my daughter, now thirty years old, still reminds me about the one Halloween that I was doing my MBA program, and I was away from home for a, a couple of days away on Halloween. Oh, you lost daddy points for that. Eight years old, I Ooh. didn't take her out that Halloween. She had to go out with my wife. She still tells me about that. Oh boy. So okay. so so it's been, it was far from perfect, but I think that there are a couple of things that were really helpful. Um, one is that I'm either blessed or cursed with a high level of laziness, right? <laughs> you know, I, I I have ambitions and there are things I want to do, and I'm a lifelong learner, and there's always something new. But at the same time, you know, I've learned that I can cut corners in places oh because my if I'm going to, I'm going to be doing all this cool stuff. I, I, I can't spend too much time like wasted doing something I didn't need to do. So you don't obsess too, too much. I try not to. Cause obsess I was going to say, it. I look at your CV. That is not the CV of a lazy person, but you know, well, correct I, me. I, I just, I just finished a book chapter for, for someone on, on talent optimization and organizational wellness. And, you know, I could perseverate about that book chapter forever. And I, I sort of worried about it for a while, but actually sitting down to writing it, you, you know, it, it, was, it was two or three hours to write the thing and and a little bit of back and forth with edit and and it's done. I mean, that's really all the project is, is, you know, only three or 4,000 words. It's not that much. Yeah, done is beautiful, right? And I don't have time to spend, you know, wordsmithing every word in it. And in the end, it's not going to be any better if I spent six times as long doing it. Or not but, much better. Not, not, I mean, there's a diminishing return on investment there. Yeah. It might not be any better, right? Yeah, I, yeah good know, point. Some or stuff could change, be worse. It might be worse, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I've learned a lot about cutting corners and being lazy <laughs> in a constructive way. Another way to put it maybe is I'm really good at prioritizing effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's important. The second part of it is, you know, it goes back to, you know, comments I made earlier about my father and my mother. We were, we were, we were a really close family. Uh, uh, I have four siblings and lots of cousins and aunts and uncles. Family connection was mm. really, really important mm-hmm. and always did that uh, with family and kids. That was so much a part of it. And my kids, you know, will talk about about me being present, but sometimes me being present was, you know, I'd be sitting in my office on a Saturday and they'd be hanging out at the office with me, cruising the kitchens all through the building to eat the little moo cow creamers, you know, and <laughs> having a blast and drawing on the whiteboards and leaving messages for my coworkers on the whiteboards. So they were part of my life. So my life was, my work life home life boundaries were really pretty permeable. But in a healthy way, it sounds like. I think more... in a healthy way. Okay. And and I was also lucky enough that my wife was in the same business. You know, she was a, 
uh, uh, just recently retired, but a very high-level psychiatric nurse, uh, mm -hmm. clinical researcher, taught at multiple universities, and mm -hmm. you know, so it was part of the dinner table yeah. conversation too. Growing up, right, you were rowing in the right in the same direction. Oh, that's I have uh, I have two quotes that are coming to me now because they are on little post-it notes uh, taped to my computer screen. To your point, uh, mainly about like strategic laziness. Don't remember the attributions for the one, but it's like the world does not reward perfectionists. It rewards people who get things done. That's right. Uh, and then then a quote from Lao Tzu, which is nature does not hurry, but all is accomplished. Both really really good quotes. The not letting the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good is is mm -hmm. is another version of that. There's lots of things to do, lots of things I want to do, always new frontiers as a, as a manager, new programs to put up, new groups of people who need services that have been ignored along the way, so much to do. You know, I, I, we can't afford to spend endless amounts of time on any single project. Let's get it done. Let's get it to work. Let's celebrate that. And then there are other things to do. Well, Tony, this has been a delight. Uh, tell me, tell us how folks can connect with you. As we mentioned at the top of this conversation, you uh, have stepped back from your organizational leadership work, but you do a lot of consulting, et cetera. How can folks connect with you and your services? So the easiest place to get a hold of me, and it's easy to remember, is TonyZipple.com. I've got a website that's focused on my work related to positive psychology and positive neuroplasticity. So you can find me there, uh, got contact information there, can set up an appointment to chat. I love to talk shop with people. So, you know, people tag me and set up a quick time to talk. That's always a good thing. The other main place that I'm connected right now is Insight, I-N-C-I-T-E, Consulting Solutions. And Insight Consulting Solutions is that little boutique consulting group working on organizational health with community behavioral health organizations. And InsightConsultingSolutions.com, you'll find me there as well. Well, Tony, I have so enjoyed talking shop with you, and uh, this has been very helpful for me. I know that it will be for the listeners as well. Thank you for this great conversation and for all of your great work. Pleasure to be here. The Earth and Spirit Podcast is a production of the Earth and Spirit Center, a nonprofit interfaith spirituality center in Louisville, Kentucky, devoted to cultivating a flourishing world through contemplative spiritual practices, engaged work for social justice, and environmental care. Joe Brown is our audio engineer, and I'm your host, Kyle Kramer. To learn more about the Earth and Spirit Center, please visit our website, www.earthandspiritcenter.org. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.